good to be with you tonight. It's good to see new members here tonight, too. It's very exciting. Um, this semester, we've been exploring how the good news about Jesus Christ impacts everything. It impacts our joy, race and justice, shame, cynicism, the power to live a different and transformed life. These are some of the things that we've looked at over the course of the semester. I mean, the, the theme that we've been looking at is the gospel changes everything. And tonight, we're going to look at how the gospel changes our perspective on suffering. And I, I realize and I recognize this is a weighty topic, especially, okay, it's Friday night, it's the end of an academic week, likely you're, you're tired and you're fatigued, I mean, and, and maybe if you're not, maybe you're not working hard enough. <laughs> but, I mean, the bottom line is, I mean, we might like a lighter topic, um, but the bottom line is, like, if Christianity can't or doesn't address suffering then like, what's the point of gathering together on a Friday night, or any night for that matter? Uh, you know, if, if, if it can't address suffering, then we're living an illusion, we're caught in a joke, and the gospel is impotent to address suffering. Uh, and as the scriptures put it in one place, well, if that's the case, then let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Uh, it's, but there's, there, the, the Bible does address suffering, the gospel does address suffering, and so we're going to look at that tonight. I mean, if you think about it, there's, there's very little equality in this world. But the one area of equality is that suffering comes to us all. That's a given. And true, some of us experience more of it than others. Okay, So there's not perfect equality. But there, and you know this, nothing, no one can protect themselves against suffering. Like no amount of money, education, privilege, government or law or status or family, nothing can protect you or keep you from suffering. Um, it's going to come your way. It's going to come my way. And we you know we have, we are, we will face difficulties and trials, small and large. We have loved ones who suffer. I mean, some of you, you have loved ones that are suffering right now. We look out into the world, you know, pretty much anything that comes in on your news feed, you, you see pain and grief and suffering. So this isn't an issue that we simply wrestle with in like a philosophy class and books and, and ideas uh, that we can kind of choose to go there and have a discussion about it. Like we can do that. It is, it is a profound intellectual discussion. But the reality is, is that we also wrestle with this in real life and in real time. And we have to wrestle with it often when we just don't want to go there or when we don't want those that we love to go there. Suffering is very real. It's personal. We just simply can't ignore it. So tonight we're going to address it. And I know your hearts and your desires. Uh, and we would love to focus on solving and ending suffering, um, even in a small way, in whatever way we can. In fact, Bill just prayed for the new members that they would be agents of good in this world. And Jesus calls his followers to be just that, to be agents of good, agents of salt and light who do good, who sacrifice, who work in tangible ways to love the neighbors around them. Why? To, to, to love them in ways that transform suffering into healing or justice or hope or wholeness. And that's a great message, but that's not our message tonight. Uh, this message that we're going to look at tonight is, comes from John 9. And the point of this passage is, is that it will change our perspective on suffering, how we think about it, um, how we consider it, how we live before God in light of it. And, and John 9 is an encounter between Jesus and a blind man. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through that encounter, and then I'm going to pull out some lessons that will reshape how we think about suffering. 
So if you had your Bible, you can open up to John 9, and I have the text on the screen, but I'll read, and you can listen to this. It's a great story. So as Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth, and so his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. But night is coming, when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And then after saying this, Jesus spit on the ground. He made some mud with the saliva, and he put it on the man's eyes. And he told him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went, he washed, and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that it was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. A twin brother that they never knew. I don't know. But he himself insisted, No, I am the man. He would know. <laughs> How then were your eyes open? They asked. And he replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. He would make a great reporter. Just all the facts right there. <laughs> well, where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. So they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. And some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. You weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath. And according to their rules, healing somebody would be work on the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner, if Jesus was such a sinner, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. And if there were, so this was like a room of junior high boys, they'd just start chanting like, fight, 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 you know? <laughs> They're fighting. So what do you do in a fight? Well, you get somebody to resolve it. So they turned to the blind, the once blind man, to resolve this. So then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. So the man replied, he is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man. So they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. So they're affirming certain things. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. So now we're back to the man. But we're told this detail. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. This is why the parents said, he is of age, ask him. So a second time, they summoned the man who had been born blind. Give glory to God and tell the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. And he replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know, 
I was blind, but now I see. So then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And if at this point you're exasperated, you're supposed to be, because this is just going in circles. <laughs> and so and you'll, see, you'll hear the exasperation. He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? <laughs> getting very interesting. So then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And then the man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. I guess this was like a miracle above all miracles. I, I, don't, I think anything that's a miracle is extraordinary, but I guess this is some sort of a miracle above a miracle. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So he gives his own theological lesson to the theological teachers. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And so they threw him out of the synagogue. It's not the end of the story. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one you are he is the one speaking to you. And then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him there. So there's the story. Um, and yeah, if you could go to the next slide, Minyi. I'm gonna flash up verses three through five here. Um, I mean I think it's a very memorable story, so you can just keep that in your mind. But I put verses 3 through 5 on the screen because we're going to use this as a focal point, about the focal point of the encounter. And I want to draw out a few lessons from this story, but they're all right here, actually, in just these few verses. So one lesson. Sometimes there is a direct or tight connection between our sin and our suffering, but sometimes not. I mean, the encounter begins with Jesus' disciples assuming that there's this tight connection between human sin and the consequence of suffering, at least in particular for this, this man born blind. They basically say, if this man was born blind, Jesus, then surely at one time somebody, either this man or the parents, somebody close to him did something terribly wrong, something sinful. And then as a consequence of that, he was blind. So they, so they asked Jesus, who sinned, the blind man or his parents? And Jesus is very emphatic about this in verse 3. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Very clear. The blind man was not suffering because of something that he had done or something that somebody that's close to him had done wrong. He was suffering, as is sometimes the case, because we live in a fallen and broken world. And, and the Bible makes that distinction. It, it, sometimes there is a direct or a tight connection between our sin and, and, the suffer, and suffering that will follow. For example, I can just throw out a couple examples that you might be familiar with. David and his sin with Bathsheba. There's a tight connection and cause between David's sin, he was, you know, committed adultery, deception, murder, and then the painful consequence that came after that. His child died. And, and the prophet Nathan says that is the suffering that comes and the consequence that comes because of, of your sin. That was the judgment upon David. Where some of you know that the people in the church at Corinth when they were coming to the communion table, to the Lord's table, they were doing it in a selfish way, and so they were getting sick. 
And, and the Apostle Paul makes that direct link or connection between their sin and then the suffering that was coming out of it. However, sometimes people suffer not because of their particular sin, but because just there's just suffering in this world. And a classic biblical example of this would be Job. You know, God himself calls Job an upright, righteous man. There's no one like him. So it is very clear that when Job suffers, and he does suffer, that he's not suffering because of, of a consequence of his particular sin. Or another classic example is this blind man. Jesus says very plainly, he's not suffering because of sin. Neither he nor his parents have sinned. Um, and this is why, I mean, just I'll just put this out there. When certain tragedies come, like 9-11, and then the suffering that follows, I become very uncomfortable when Christian leaders quickly pronounce a, like a tight connection. You know, this tragedy happened because of X, Y, or Z sin. We have to be really careful about making those tight connections. Uh, you know, su- yes, when suffering comes, it is a time to examine ourselves or even to examine our country, to see if there's any offensive way in us, and, and then if there is, to turn from it and to turn to God. And we, I mean, we could tell stories of, of people where, where that was the case. But sometimes suffering comes simply because we live in a very, very broken world. Still, there's one thing that disciples got right here in this first, this first lesson, is that sin causes suffering. And that's a a powerful reminder for us. Sin is not to be trifled with. It causes suffering. Somebody close to us, and I'll just keep this just anonymous, but it's a generic enough story that I think all of us will identify with this. Somebody very close to me and Danielle recently, very recently, came to to us, and they were really upset because somebody said an angry and hurtful word to them. And it turned out to be a word that wasn't true. And this person came to me and Danielle cried, they felt really bad, and they just lost a lot of sleep about it. And Danielle and I, we cried, we felt bad, we felt the burden, and we lost sleep over it too. Now thankfully this story had a happy ending. You know, there was reconciliation, and and both sides grew in deeper understanding of each other. But my point here is that, look, look at that, one careless, hurtful word impacts multiple people on multiple levels and leads to suffering. And now on the scale of suffering, I recognize like a hurtful word, you know, that's toward the bottom of the scale compared to other things. Um, but, but sometimes many hurtful words lead to irreconciled relationships and, and even more suffering. But we just have to see, this is what the, this is the connection that the disciples saw. Our, our sin causes suffering and, and it begins to, when we sin, it causes suffering and then it begins to radiate out in ways that we can't control, um, and, and far wider than we imagine. And, and you know, in, in that circumstance, I began to think, like, okay, what about me? How often, when have I said a very hurtful, careless, thoughtless word, and how did that impact not just that person, but then began to radiate out, radiate out even further and wider? So think about this question. How can a good God allow suffering? I mean, you've heard that before. The question as it's phrased, it, 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 it's a good question. But even as it's phrased, it, it points the finger and it blames God. It, it makes us question God's goodness. How can a good God allow suffering? And, and we, as humans, we have to at least own up to our side of it. 
the scriptures remind us that often we need to point the finger at our own selves because we are often the ones who cause suffering. And this, not that that truth resolves the issue of suffering or takes away all the difficulty when we suffer, but it alters our perspective. It gives us a dose of the realities of what sin is and how we participate in it and how we cause suffering ourselves. So that's one lesson. Second lesson, under God's sovereign hand, suffering has a purpose and is not senseless. And you can't miss this in verse 3. It's right there when Jesus says, you know, he basically knows why this man has suffered from blindness his whole life up to this point. He knows the purpose, the meaning the point to his long suffering. Jesus says, this is so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And I understand this is a unique moment in salvation history. You know, Jesus is on the scene and God wants to reveal the uniqueness of his son. He wants to reveal the uniqueness of Jesus Christ to the world. And to, to keep with the metaphor of this passage, this world is a dark place It's full of evil and suffering. But Jesus, as he says right there in verse 5, he says, I am the light of the world. And now think about this. How does God communicate this truth that Jesus is the light of the world to the world around Jesus? It is through this man. This man suffered for many years, yes, but there was a purpose He was the one God chose to personally display to the world that Jesus really is the light of the world, that Jesus really is the one who can lead us out of darkness and into light. He did it for this man first, and he displayed that through this man, and he can do it through us too. And think about this as well. This man lived his entire life up to this point. Most likely he was older than all of you, or at least most of you, you know, 20, 30 years old. He lived his entire life up to this point not knowing that purpose. He was literally in the dark, metaphorically in the dark on that. He could not see why he was suffering. He couldn't see the good purpose. But Jesus knows that God had a purpose for this man's suffering. And he voices it here. And remember the, the climax of the story. Where did this suffering take this man? Where did it eventually lead him? You know, Jesus heard that when they cast him out, he went to the, to the man, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. This is, what a picture. You know, a man who has suffered is now bowing in worship before Jesus. This man's suffering brought him into a closer, deeper, more intimate relationship with the Lord. And don't forget, he's exchanged one kind of suffering, you know, blindness, but but now he's experiencing a different kind of suffering. He's been kicked out of his community, kicked out of the synagogue. Even from the text, there are hints, maybe he's not even welcome in his family anymore. But yet, this man, even though he's still suffering in a different way, this man draws nearer to Christ and comes to know him in a deeper way. And this is a really important lesson for us. We don't want to suffer. And that is a perfectly natural human desire. I get it, because I'm human too, just like you. 
And we can even say that suffering was not part of God's original plan for us humans. And in that sense, it's an experience that he never originally intended for us. But now, in this broken and sinful world, suffering is inevitable. And it will continue to come to all of us. And and therefore, you know, the question we ask is like, well, is there any purpose? Is there any point? And the passage clearly says that this man, the, the, the encounter, clearly says, yes, the works of God are displayed through this man and through this man's sufferings. I mean, here we are 2,000 years later in Princeton, New Jersey, talking about this man who lived in first century Palestine. I don't think there's going to be anybody talking about me 2,000 years from now, right? The works of God are still being displayed through this man. Not just then, but even now. And this man, he didn't know that. He couldn't see that. But God can. God had a purpose for this man's suffering. God can use and he will use suffering for the good purpose of drawing us closer to himself and even revealing himself to others through our suffering. And again, this is a huge lesson for us. We think that, okay, if God just gave me everything I want, everything I, if he could just give me everything I want, and if I never went through really difficult times, it, it would be so much easier to live faithfully to God. You know, to always give him thanks and to always obey him with joy. But it's actually the opposite. And this is where the scriptures really push us. You know, I can't help but think of King Solomon. You know, God poured out on him so many good things. He spared nothing. Comfort, pleasures, riches, power, influence, fame. King Solomon had it all, arguably. And where did all that take him? He just wandered away from God by the end of his life. I mean, and what a contrast. Here this blind man, deprived of so much, deprived of his sight, deprived of being able to work, deprived of even able, being able to walk around easily without help. But through that suffering, he draws closer to God, and then King Solomon, given so much, but through that plenty and abundance, he wanders away from God. It may, I mean, it makes us realize that we... Like King Solomon, we actually face great dangers when we don't suffer. I mean, we might even be able to say, you know, there's a greater danger that we face if we don't suffer. And this is one of the major weaknesses with modern Western American culture, is is that it doesn't have a satisfying answer to suffering. If, if, you know, if you take sort of the American mindset that's like, there's meaning in life, the meaning of life is to have the freedom to choose the life that makes me most happy. You know, whether it's my career, my, my, my partner, what I buy, where I live, you know, and then the material world is what I focus on. That's really all that I think about and that's all, maybe all that there is. And then when suffering comes in to that mindset, it's a complete interruption to that life story. When suffering comes in, it's now it's suffering is that thing that's blocking the happiness that you are pursuing. And, and therefore, the implicit message of Western or American culture is that suffering must be avoided at all costs and minimized to the greatest degree possible. Because there's, there's no purpose, there's no meaning to it. And Dr. Paul Brand, he's an orthopedic surgeon. He spent his entire life treating leprosy patients in, the Indi- in India and in the U.S., 
Uh, he's a very inspiring man. He actually wrote a book with Philip Yancey, who's a modern author. It, it, the book is called The Gift of Pain. And so you can hear even from the title, it's like, okay, pain is actually a gift. And listen to what he says. He says, in the United States, I encountered a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. Patients lived at a greater comfort level than any I had previously treated, but they seem far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. And he goes on to say, why? And, and he argues, it's because our culture doesn't see any purpose or meaning that can flow out of suffering. And, and, for, and for, for Christians, or for people considering the Christian faith, thinking about it, wondering, this is where the Christian faith and the, the scriptures speak up, where our culture is silent and, and at a loss to say anything. Suffering, it's not, suffering in and itself is not good, but God can use it for good, and, and, and therefore it can have meaning and purpose. Or as John 9 puts it, God uses suffering as a means by which he displays his work through us. So there is a purpose to suffering. And so when we find ourselves in seasons where the Lord calls us to be patient in affliction and in our suffering, we need to know, okay, well, what are his purposes? What is he up to? How might he be displaying his work in and through me? And I, I'm not going to, this, is, this, is, this could be an entire message, but I just want to just put these hooks in your mind. I'm just going to throw out a few scriptures that give you the meaning because the Bible mentions many things. God gives us many ways in which he uses suffering. So just really quickly, a few before we move on to our third and final point. Some of the ways that God displays his work um, through us, through suffering. It shapes our character and sharpens our hope, Romans 5. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. It also tests and purifies the genuineness of our faith, 1 Peter 1. In all of this you greatly rejoice, though for now, for a little while, you've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. It enables us to comfort others who have suffered like us. 2 Corinthians 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. And it brings others to faith who, who see you trust God through suffering. I mean, there's a classic text. This is a long text. I won't read it. But it's, it's a story about Paul and Silas. They've just been beaten for their faith. They've been imprisoned. And they're singing songs of praise to God in the jail cell. And then not too long after that, the jailer can't believe what they're doing. And he ends up coming to faith in Christ because of their witness by rejoicing in their suffering. Uh, and, and also an earthquake. But <laughs> <laughs> That's the last thing that kind of pushed him in that direction. Um, but it was, it was really the testimony of Paul and Silas rejoicing in their sufferings for Christ. And so we, see, these are the purposes that God has and many others. And we need to be aware of these purposes because when suffering comes, one of the things that's going to hit our mind is like, this is pointless. This is senseless. I don't understand why this is happening. And we, we need to be aware that it is not purposeless. Yes, it is hard. Yes, it is painful. Yes, it will be full of tears and fears and grief. 
but God can and will display his work through us and through our suffering. So lesson three, if you go to the last slide, then look at verse four again, where Jesus says, we must keep working the works of him who sent me while it is day. Jesus tells his disciples, we, plural, we have work to do, but then he warns the disciples that, you know, the work will continue while it is day, but night is coming. And this is a cryptic phrase. I, I believe Jesus here refers to his own impending death. He knows that's coming. You know, when his eyes will shut in night, his eyes will, will see the cold darkness of a tomb. And, and all throughout Jesus' ministry, he talked over and over and over again about the necessity of his death and, that suffer, and the suffering that he must endure. And, and that's what he's referring to in this cryptic phrase, night is coming. And I can't remember where I heard or I read this, but it is so telling when you read through the gospel accounts, it is so telling that there are no instances of Jesus laughing. And I believe the reason for this is that it highlights why he came. He didn't come to laugh or to be entertained or to live a life surrounded by comfort or relative security. He came to suffer. That was his mission. And now I imagine Jesus laughed plenty. I mean, you know, I mean, he had his disciples after all. <laughs> right? I bet you Jesus laughed plenty, and I bet you he enjoyed entertaining moments with his family, the disciples. But fundamentally, he was a man of sorrows. He was familiar with suffering. He faced the worst the world could offer. Ridicule, injustice, abandonment by his closest friends, betrayal, physical pain, suffering, and ultimately death. And why would Jesus willingly subject himself to all of this suffering? It's because he wanted to accomplish God's good purposes, his good purposes of salvation for us through the cross and ultimately the resurrection. And when you think about that, that knowledge, it doesn't make our suffering easier or less painful doesn't do that at all. But it does answer some of those lingering questions lurking in the back of our mind. You know, does God care? Does he know what I'm going through? Is he willing to get involved and take on the burdens that we take on in this world? Is he powerful enough to do it? Loving enough? God takes our suffering so seriously, he's willing to take it on himself. He steps into suffering himself. Some of you know John Lennox. He's a math professor at Oxford or Cambridge. I can't remember. Yeah, I see some of you applauding. Um, he was here a few years ago to debate, uh, the, to debate Gideon Rosen, who's a professor in the philosophy department here, to debate the topic of, you know, can a good God allow suffering in this world? It was a phenomenal debate. You can actually watch it on YouTube. But during that debate, he said something like this. Let me just read this. this he's, he, he makes this point. It's so well. He says, the heart of Christianity for me is not just the resurrection but it's what precedes it. We know that Jesus died and he was crucified. Now that in and of itself would be of very little, of very little significance for there were many crucifixions at that time. Josephus, the historian, tells us that there were many. But then he goes on to say, but the significance of this particular one crucifixion is the nature of the person who was crucified. The claim is that this was God incarnate. And if this is God incarnate, the question is, what is God doing on the cross to put it quite pointedly? 
And he says, at the very least, it shows me that God does not remain distant to the problem of human suffering, but he actually and willingly becomes a part of it. And this opens up the window of possibility that brings real hope and historically has brought real hope to millions of people that have gone through some of the most awful sufferings, but somehow have had the strength to say that in the death of Christ, there's a window into the heart of God and to what God is like. Just That's just a great reminder that we, we worship and we trust a God who has not remained distant, but who has stepped into this world with us and who has suffered for us. God's answer to the suffering of this world is to suffer himself. And because Jesus Christ, he's willing to suffer and die, he has now broken the stronghold of sin, of death, and of suffering and evil in this world. And there will come a day, there will come a day when every tear will be wiped from our eyes. But in the meantime, in the here and now, we will suffer. And when we face those difficulties, we face them knowing we have a God who knows suffering personally, who is up to good in our lives through the suffering we face, who will never leave us, never forsake us, and who can be trusted. And I realize, even as I say those things, and those things are true, unshakably true, I recognize it's, it's just easy to say them. It is a complete different thing. It is so hard to live them out and to believe them during life's darker times. And this is why we need each other. You know, we need each other to come alongside of each other, to listen to each other when we're suffering, to encourage each other, to pray for each other, and to remind each other of those lessons. And it also helps to hear of personal examples of, of, of how... You know, we're struggling and we're bumping along, we're walking by faith and not by sight when it comes to suffering in this world. And one of our beloved seniors to come forward and share with us what God has been teaching him recently through the trials and suffering that he continues to face. 